would like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtables. My name is Elena and I am the student coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is arrhythmic justice for commercialized health data and our host today will be Mary from Drexel University. Hi everyone, I'm Mary Ebling. I'm a professor of so uh, associate professor in sociology, as well as um, I'm the director of women's and gender studies at Drexel University, and I'm happy to be here. I'm Frank Wilkinson. I'm an associate professor of biochemistry and the director of the biology program at Jefferson East Falls campus. Evan Lay, I'm the director of the Office Spectrum Center. Nini Rao, I'm assistant professor of chemistry and. Uh, coordinator for mathematics and my background is computational chemistry. Okay, um, well thanks everyone for having me here today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit, I, uh, I should explain that I'm a sociologist that studies, um, I, I kind of work in a couple of areas, so I, I work in um, the area of science and tech studies. Uh, I also work in the area of um, uh, marketing, so studying how um, how uh, health marketing, pharmaceutical marketing, kind of impacts um, patient experience of, of um, the medical industry. And today, I wanted to talk about. Oh, and I should also say that I also work kind of in this area called critical data studies. Um, and today, I wanted to talk about. Um, the use of how the medical industry um, obtains or, or produces and um, collects health data from patients and how this health data, even though it's um, collected, uh, often it's collected within uh, covered entities under HIPAA, um, how this uh, data kind of seeps out of these protections um, and is used by third parties um, in places like consumer marketing, uh, places like financial um, financial risk assessment, um, things like the FICO score. Um, and I'm I wanted to kind of for us to kind of think about what does uh, algorithmic justice look like in um, in a health industry, in a health industry that is kind of swimming in data that eventually becomes unprotected, um, so I'm going to start with uh, kind of trying to frame a little bit of what I want to talk about today. I'm going to show you some images from my from my book and from the research uh, on my book, um, and then we can talk about that. And what is the name of that book? Oh, the <laughs> name of the book is Healthcare and Big Data, um, and it came out in uh, November 2016. And it's a, I wrote it as a uh, autoethnographic noir, where I basically take my own health data and I trace it as it kind of is, leaves my body, uh, goes into my electronic health record, goes into my prescription data, um, and then leaves out and it enters into uh, consumer databases, consumer uh, marketing databases, and then comes back to haunt me uh, in the form of um, direct marketing, 
based on my health status. So I will explain that in, in a moment when I show you some of the images. Just so grateful for you coming here today, and that book I imagine is available on Amazon. It is available on Amazon, and um, yeah, and there's a little thing I'm going to show you. It's a fascinating read. I started it the other day for in preparation for this, and it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I just started, so I'm still going through the first chapter. It's great. Oh, thank you. Um, so I just kind of prepared this. Um, on the last day of, of January 2018, Amazon, Berkshire, Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase announced publicly that they were going to soon form a partnership to start a healthcare company for their employees, a deal that some observers claim could disrupt the healthcare market by leveraging the information and data technologies that all three of these companies have and apply it to healthcare, borrowing the disrupt term, of course, is borrowed from uh, Silicon Valley to describe the business of just um, a, a, a term, a disrupt being a, a very Silicon Valley term, um, where they were basically claiming that they were going to disrupt this entire industry. Um, in a recent interview about, about this um, announcement, Steve Inskeep on National Public Radio interviewed um, Duke University health economist Kevin Schulman and asked where he where Kevin Schulman asked us to imagine the possibilities of a company like Amazon providing healthcare services and I quote from him so imagine that you are that you are all <clears throat> so imagine that you all that you had all of your data on Amazon on an Amazon device. When you woke up in the morning, you didn't feel well. You talked to Alexa. And she said, do you know what, Steve? Maybe you should come in and see us, or maybe you should get your blood drawn, and I'll set up an appointment for you. In response, Inkeeps asked, oh, so the smart speaker is going to become your admitting nurse, or whatever you want to call it. And Steve responds, it absolutely could. And the backbone of this could, you would have, you would have to, would have to be access to really high quality data that you generally don't have. Your doctor has it, or their health health system has it. One of the things that they're going to have to do is work on liberating the data so that these services can actually be really impactful for you. So what I found very um, chilling about what this health economist was proposing was somehow that Amazon would leverage the data that they already have on you, and they have massive amounts of data on each and every one of us, and basically make health diagnosis or uh, recommendations for healthcare based on your, you know, your Google searches and your you know, your purchases, you know, I don't know, ointments or whatever you purchased on Amazon. Um, but what was more chilling about that was the fact that they already are doing this. They're already leveraging data from disparate sources in order to diagnose all of us um, and to market to us. I'm going to interrupt for a second. Yeah. I'm just seeing how this would work. So say 
I'm asking Alexa to order a case of beer for me every week or, or whatever I'm drinking or, right. or I'm eating fried foods or whatever. Exactly. I'm ordering pizza every Thursday night. What they're going to be able to do is take all of my individual consumer habits and create a health profile. Precisely. But I'm here to tell you today that, that um, these consumer data companies are already doing that to us. You already started to get information from emails and messages. If you have online um, you know, uh, prescription service that use certain priority drugs and then whatnot, they were starting to market to you says, hey, I know you're taking this. We're talking about mostly diabetes and other type of like drugs that may be high value. Like you know, people are more interested in buying it and they're like, oh yeah, we have such and such a generic version of it. And they already started just by basically replacing your uh, prescription online or sometimes even just to call in and they already started. So how do I know this? So I know this, I mean, partly Nini has kind of already said, you know, there's an increase in kind of direct-to-consumer pharmaceutical advertising online based on the collection of your behavior, your online behaviors. Um, so in my book, I do say that Experian owns us. And Experian is one of the three credit bureaus, um, three major credit bureaus in the United States um, that are, in essence, also marketing data companies, especially Experian. And so how do I know this? I know this because, um, it won't go away. Um, in my book, I kind of start out the book in describing um, how a, a, my data kind of came to haunt me. My health data came to haunt me one day. So I had gone to the doctor. I had been um, going to a fertility clinic for several years. I had had several miscarriages. And I was pregnant. Um, and I went because of the high risk pregnancy that I was currently carrying, mm -hmm. I went to the doctor for a six week scan. And when I came home that day, this was waiting for me. My, my, um, my postman had delivered a, a box of Similac samples to my, my door the very day that I had been at the doctor's office having my six week scan. And I remember thinking that day, like, oh, that's strange. How can the marketers already know that I'm pregnant? I mean, I'm only six weeks pregnant. Um, and then, but I kind of didn't think about it because I was excited about being pregnant after so many years of trying. Um, <clears throat> and as the weeks went on through the pregnancy, I continued to... Uh, have more direct um, marketing sent to, to me, either through my mailbox or online. You're looking at uh, American Baby magazine. Yes. Yeah, so the the other the day that I actually miscarried, so I did not um, the pregnancy 
I lost the pregnancy in the first trimester. And the day that I miscarried and I came back from the doctor, this free subscription, a year-long subscription to American Baby had also been delivered to me while I was at the doctor's office. And at that point, I decided, okay, I'm going to collect all of these materials. I'm not going to tell them to stop. And through my investigation, and so this is, was the basis of my book, I, I hunted down this digital baby, this data baby, as I call it in the book, um, to try to understand how am I being haunted by, did my doctor sell my data? Was it through my uh, credit card swipes? At, was it my insurance company? So I traced all of the different pathways that my data might have left from the HIPAA protections mm -hmm. and out into this kind of digital universe where, at least in the United States, because we don't have um, omnibus privacy, data privacy laws, um, it's kind of a free-for-all. Like once your data is out there, I mean, as we all know, once your data is out there, um, it becomes a golem that kind of stomps around and kind of comes back to wreak havoc on all of us, potentially. Um, in my case, it was definitely a golem. <laughs> um, so basically, throughout, throughout my book, I, um, I, I eventually get a letter 10 months after the miscarriage uh, from a uh, university research lab that does research on infant um, language ac acquisition inviting me to bring my baby in, my, at that point would have been, it would have only been a few months old, um, but uh, to bring my baby in to participate in this, uh, this research that they were conducting. So I called them on the phone and I said, I don't have a baby and I want to, I, I'm a sociologist that actually studies, um, pharmaceutical marketing, and I want to know how you got my information. And they were so appalled that something like this could happen, um, they opened up their, uh, their uh, I guess it would be uh, their, what is it called, um, like a, a target uh, database, like for potential um, re recruitment database. And they had purchased my <clears throat> my information along with about 15 other, 1,500 other new parents in the Philadelphia region from Experian. And so once I had that information, I was able to kind of track down all of the different ways that Experian was able to collate all of these disparate data that I produced just by existing and existing online um, to kind of stitch together a data profile of me and make inferences about my life, about my health. Um, and so what I discovered was it was, I was never able to actually get to the, the I could never get my actual data profile. 
Now you don't have to read it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not to read all the details. Yeah, I mean, now you really yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, so I was never able to kind of get hold my data baby in my arms. That was the ultimate goal that I wanted to do. But along the way, I was able to kind of learn that um, that Experian purchases. Uh, public data, so things like um, uh, birth records, marriage records, um, liens on houses, mortgages, all of that kind of, um, or deeds like recently purchased homes, all of this kind of public information. But then they also purchase um, what's considered private information, so things like um, transactional uh, credit card transactions, um, they will purchase things like uh, prescription data that's been de-identified. Um, and so this is how, this is one of the ways that pharmaceutical companies can directly um, market to, especially to doctors, because places like Experian will purchase uh, prescription data from pharmacies because there was a 2011 Supreme Court case that basically declared that prescription data that's owned by pharmacies mm -hmm. is considered first protected First Amendment speech. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a right to sell this data to places like Experian or to places like... What? what? Wait, wait, wait. Before, because we're getting... Before we even get that far. Okay. That, that's <laughs> I just want to ask the lead of the panel here, because I'm shocked. I had no idea if the surname did any of this. As far yes. as I was concerned, they, they did your credit score. And that was it. I did, Frank, do you have any idea this? This was news to me, yes. I'm shocked, yes. Um, Elena? I had no idea, yeah, because I just started using experience. I was like, oh, I'll be an adult. Like, I'll figure out my credit and whatnot. But that's crazy. I had no idea. Did you know? No. I, I, I know that our data has been mined from a computer um, algorithm perspective. I know this has happened through long ago, because when you buy a new house, you get they automatically send you um, you know information about um, like you know oh we have insurance and stuff and then you can remortgage and then you you get a student loan they immediately you have a record of student I still get emails telling me that you can refinance your student loan even though it's been paid off for quite some time and health data wise I know from it's not my personal but my husband have certain prescriptions and he would call me and say Guess what? Who I got a phone call from today? Certain like you know, pharmacy are selling him the you know the same prescription at a much lower cost, mm -hmm. and so so I know the data and mining exists, but I did not know the extent of this kind of data. And what makes this even scarier is the recent hack into Experian. Well, See, into Equifax. Uh, yeah. And Equifax, I mean, uh, so currently I'm doing research on the three um, major mm -hmm. credit risk scores, so Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Mm -hmm. Equifax is the um, company that was contracted with the ACA to do all of the, um, uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it, so excuse me, um, with this kind of lack of knowledge so far, but I do know that they were contracted by the uh, federal government to do um, credit score, uh, credit background checks on 
applicants who are applying through the, the exchanges, mm -hmm. who are uh, doing uh, the Medicaid expansion, so mm -hmm. like verifying their income so that they can qualify for the subsidy in certain states that have done the Medicare, uh, the Medicare expansion. Um, so they were the, so they have, yeah. But it's far more than our credit scores. That yes, there. absolutely. And all three of the um, credit score companies provide different kinds of scoring products based on all of the data that they hold on, on us to places like hospitals um, and healthcare providers in order to either determine whether or not a patient can pay for services, or to do things like do analysis uh, on their the data that they hold, that like um, Equifax holds, to determine whether or not a patient has the um, will be compliant in terms of taking medications, what the possible readmission. Um, chances might be of a particular patient, which of course indicates things for Medicaid and Medicare. How do they do that? Do you, do you, do you have any, um, I, like, uh, what, how do they, what kind of information, what kind of profile that they have so to be able to, I can understand the idea of whether you can pay or not, but to be able to predict whether you can take your medication, that kind of personal behavior. Because uh, because the, the credit score companies are now using um, consumer behavior analytics on the data that they hold on all of us um, in order to, and then they sell these the products. Of your age and your background would typically do, because they don't really care about you, they care about the groups of you. Exactly. And, and um, okay. it's what the uh, actors are really involved in. No, I finally understand what my son-in-law does. If you're listening, <laughs> my, I finally understand what you're doing. But, uh, but getting back to what you're saying, so we can go off on, on yeah. this one. Your particular situation that we found out, at least I've seen two ways. Through your doctor, through your medications that you're taking, fertility, um, drugs, and so forth, through purchases, or through your own internet searches. And that changes things, because one would be illegal, I think, uh, and one, if you're exposing through your web searches, that's the way it is. There's no privacy. No right. So, so where did you find these things? Okay. So this is all true, except for the illegal thing. So for example, yes, I, I did suspect that one of the ways that my data got into the hands of Experian um, was through my fertility drug prescription. So mm -hmm. I had, um, through the clinic, I had went, uh, they had sent prescriptions for specialty drug, uh, for drugs for me at a specialty pharmacy in New Jersey. And uh, they were, the drugs were delivered to me overnight um, by FedEx. So <clears throat> what happens, source. right, that was another possible source. And I used my credit card um, to pay for the $9,000 of fertility drugs. Um, so <clears throat> basically, in terms of why 
this is technically not illegal what happened was because my data, so my doctor would have used my electronic health record to write the prescription. It would have been electronically delivered to the specialty pharmacy. They would have had all of this data, including information like my doctor's uh, medical license, and um, I think, the, I don't know the name of it, but I think there's a, an ID number that they're given for prescriptions. Um, so they would have, the pharmacy would have had all of this data, including, and then they would have also had data on me, including my protected health information, which is the PHI, which is protected under HIPAA. So that data goes through a series of processes um, of verification to make sure you know that fraud is not being committed. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not committing fraud. My doctor is not committing fraud. Through that process, some of my PHI would have been de-identified to make it legal, to make it safe for it to circulate kind of outside of HIPAA protections. So as long as my PHI has been de-identified, there's no connection directly to me and my prescription data, it's considered legal to kind of release out the outside of HIPAA. That has no name on it. It has no name on it. However, these companies such as Experian, their business is to triangulate and re-identify data. So they have at least 33 IP so in order a, to so re-identify. So there's like the legality, because no one is exposing your name, they're figuring it out. They're making inferences. They are making these highly sophisticated predictive guesses on, and they're pulling my data because they, they have all of my data, my mortgage information, they have my credit card transactions, they have this FedEx stuff, they have all of these data that are coming from things like either my prescriptions or they're coming from my online surfing behavior, but they are also coming from, they potentially can come from things like um, my loyalty cards that I used at like CVS to purchase ovulation prediction kits or prenatal vitamins. And so they take all of this data and they make these highly sophisticated you guesses. Left all the clues. I left all the clues for them. They stitched together this, this other life for me. If your doctor, so the people listening, if your doctor contacted anyone and said, my patient, giving your name, is taking these fertility drugs. That's a violation of HIPAA. That is a violation as long as she she can do that as long as the other contact is within is a covered entity. Okay, right. She can use my name, okay. but anything, any third party. Like Experian. Yeah, Experian. Yes, that would be an illegal disclosure. Or Simulac, or any of those. Yeah, those are all illegal disclosures. But it's not illegal for them to take all the crumbs that you've left, the data crumbs, and put that together right. and then expose your history to others. Precisely. And that's precisely what happened to me. And not only to me. I mean, I interviewed several patients that this also happened to. 
Um, and this, I mean, this is happening to us. I mean, it can happen on very, like a mundane level where it's not so traumatic, you know, like Mimi had mentioned, or it might, I mean, it, it depends. It's not, it's not, I mean, it just it was amusing to, to my husband that they were able to, in the beginning, he was like, how did they find my information? And then, then now it becomes a little bit more common. Like they, they call, not, I shouldn't say every day, but once a week or so, they're trying to sell him these, you know, exactly what he's taking, except a different, you know, cheaper price, basically. And he, he just like, that's what he was wondering. How did they get the data? They were bothers me about this, too. And obviously, it was extremely upsetting, you know, emotionally. But when I was involved with a big employer, big corporation, and I want to hire a young lady here, Carrie Lane, and um, she seems nice in the interview. She, you know, her resume looks nice. But uh, does she drink? You know, how much, how much does she drink? Does she make questionable purchases? Does she go to bars at night? You know, I can find all that stuff out. Yes, you can. Um, that, or if I hire her, she works 10 years, I want to do, we want to promote her. Um, and we look at her background, now she's in a bigger database. We'd be making decisions uh, on all of these elements of people's lives which we think are private. Right. Or how do I, should I be insured? Should I, should I, automobile insurance? Maybe they'll turn you down if you go to too many bars. Or, and they uh, do that. They do that. Or they, they, it's called, um, well, one of the ways that like auto uh, car insurance insurers um, uh, use our data, kind of like data that you think is private, that has nothing to do with your driving record, and they use it to either deny you insurance or to raise your premiums. Um, it's called price optimization. And what they do is they purchase consumer data. So like, let's say, you go to the grocery store and you use your loyalty card at the grocery store. Um, or they can also get access to like receipt data. Um, and they see, oh, well, Evan tends to, yeah, to buy a lot of fatty foods. Fatty foods. And red meats all the time. Or right. fried foods. I like and my McDonald's closure, whatever. I eat like the president. So I Exactly. And then what they do is that they have algorithms that they, you know, these actuary algorithms um, in order to say, okay, well, Evan, he, he, he engages in certain high-risk behaviors. And it may not even have anything to do that would directly impact on your driving behavior. Mm -hmm. But they use that to, for what they call price optimization, which essentially means to raise your rates. Is there any way, as consumers, is there any way that we can protect ourselves to a certain degree? Like, you know, I mean, I have friends who will not have royalty card, yes. who will not um, have a lot of, like, like she wanted to make a donation, this is a true story, she wanted to make a donation to an organization, and she does not, she did not want to do it online. And then she contacted the organization, the organization said, okay, this is our bank account, this is, you know, you can make put a deposit this way. So she went to the bank to put a deposit for the donation to the, to the organization. It was a huge ordeal for the bank because bank didn't know what's going on. They, they, everybody, security came out, everything. 
And she was like, all I wanted to do is donate some money to this organization. Directly into Directly into the account because she didn't want to um, be any, like a digital. Yeah, paper trail. I mean, we laugh it off as conspiracy theorists, but I mean, I don't think she, she, she is. So you hit on um, a, something that a, a researcher at um, Princeton, she also attempted to kind of go off the grid, the digital grid, uh, when she became pregnant. And so she hid, digitally, she hid this information from, you know, the databases. And in the end, what she discovered was that she was read by kind of the data industry as be, as a criminal. She did things, yeah, she did yeah, things like she, she bought burner phones. She, um, she didn't post anything online. She didn't surf online. She didn't, you know, nothing online. She paid for, ca used cash for all her purchases, or she would use cash to do things like buy um, preloaded Visa cards, things like that. And in the end, she was considered, her behaviors were considered criminal. How did that get revealed? Sorry? How did that get revealed or that that was a pattern, a criminal life pattern? How was that recognized? Um, you know, I don't know how she determined how it would, she has just claimed that she was read, I think it was through, she was engaging in, um, because she was using cash, because she was buying burner cards and these like preloaded cards, which I guess other communities that engage in illicit activities also do. Um, but I don't know how they, how the, you know, the data industry figured her out specifically, but. Are we looking at a future where we become digital characters? And we're, we're already. Already. <laughs> and we are evaluated. Jobs, insurance. Yes. All of that. We're so one of the. The reason why I, I title, I had algorithmic justice in the title is because there are more and more of our um, systems that are relying solely on these digital platforms, on these algorithmic um, systems in order to make decisions about us. So places like in education, health, of course, I've already described this a little bit but also like in criminal justice or in employment. So for sentencing, there are, there are more- So pre-sentence report? Or okay. where they are deciding how to sentence you on a background check, that this would be a digital background check? Yes, yes. Um, and then also uh, things like um, more and more like large employers are using um, algorithms to um, scan to like make decisions about hiring so they're looking at CVs instead of people looking at CVs they're relying on these kind of hiring decisions through algorithms and lo and behold just as we all have um, our society you know has systemic racism gender you know gender biases class biases all of these things built into our society, of course, our algorithms are also being built. I was going to ask you that, is the algorithm, you know, has the potential to be 
unbiased, but since it's written by us human, <laughs> obviously there is a bias built into it. Of course, yeah. So, and algorithmic justice is the the acknowledgement or the asking that, like, first of all, acknowledging that our systems are biased, and that we cannot, we have to hold algorithms and these platforms accountable, because the potential for things like what happened to me are happening all the time over, they're being replicated over and over again. So which leads to the next part. Now yeah. we know there's a significant problem. And we yes. understand it. Um, that one solution didn't work at all, going off the grid, so that anything that makes it worse. So you're saying hold them accountable. How, how do you hold them accountable? That one is much tougher, and I'm not quite sure how, how you know, um, how we make how we make these companies accountable. Um, I will tell you. I mean, I'm an ethnographer. Essentially, that's the kind of I do qualitative research, and my main kind of tools are ethnography. And so, in when I was researching for this book, one of the ethnographies that I did is I I went to the largest database marketing convention in the world, the DMA, and I walked around the kind of the, the big kind of convention floor, and I just walked up to these, you know, representatives of these companies. I told them my story. I said, I'm a sociologist, I'm, but I'm doing this research on how, how my kind of digital baby came to haunt me, and every single person I spoke to was aghast. I mean, they were horrified that they're building these systems, and they said to me over and over again, but it's not supposed to work that way. We're supposed to take these massive amounts of data and make these kind of inferences. We're not supposed to kind of directly identify individuals to target them, but, but, but they are. Because <laughs> the list is coming in your situation. It came from the spirit. Right. They bought a list. Right. That you were on. Right. So they obviously know they're exposing your name. Right. So there's going to be ramifications. So they're just full of it. They are. But I mean, so this is the interesting thing. The one company that would refuse to speak to me was Experian. Oh. <laughs> but all of these other companies um, were, you know, like, oh, like, they, they actually, I mean, these representatives could not quite understand. Because they're kind of, they're like building this, you know, there's this big black box and they're kind of turning one knob, but no one has kind of an understanding of the whole system. Well, and so this is, I think, one of the ways. The only way yeah. to be able to change is through a privacy lawsuit. Yeah. And I was interested if you did any research, has the ACLU or anyone filed a lawsuit? Because what they're doing is they're getting around it. They're getting yeah. around the privacy. They're, they're putting the puzzles that are supposed to be put together, but they're taking the puzzle and putting it together and exposing everything that's supposed to be secret. Right. So they're doing it. They're, the harm they are, they are violating our privacy. So I wonder, has anyone taken any legal steps? So I did, um, so out of that, that convention, one of the uh, a gas data brokers said, oh, you should get in touch with the um, consumer protection um, 
Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Is that a government thing? Yeah, that's Good the luck one. With that. Well, and that's the one that's now under Mulvaney, and that's being consciously killed yeah. um, by the current administration. But this was before the current administration. Okay. They were actually not that helpful. But also, I worked with a, a UK-based data uh, subject rights organization because in Europe. They actually have omnibus. They recognize that all of us are a data subject. So we don't have an omnibus uh, legal, like law, privacy laws. You know, they're kind of dispersed throughout uh, different acts. But in the EU, there's a, it's called the data subject. I mean, we, uh, there's a recognition that your privacy adheres to an individual person, not to different bits of your data. Um, so I worked with this organization in the UK also because Experian is ostensibly an EU company because they through a reverse merger to avoid taxes, they, they're uh, registered in Dublin, which you know is a tax haven. Um, for a lot of companies. Um, so that was kind of the logic, but even they could not get beyond, they, they basically experienced, sent me my credit report, that's not what I wanted. They sent me, um, yeah, they sent me actually a couple copies of my credit report, which of course didn't have all of this kind of consumer data information where they kind of constructed this is there, data different, is there different rules uh, statewide? Different states have data protection laws. Yes. So different states have different, um, different some different privacy laws, and also in terms of HIPAA. And then even at kind of at a more granular level, certain hospital systems, health care practices, through their privacy officers, will um, advise certain changes. Uh, in terms of how they handle data privacy within their practices that can be even tighter than what's recommended by HIPAA or even by the state. So it can, it can be very privacy and how it's handled with our data in, um, in certain healthcare systems can be very, very kind of tight or then in other ways, depending on where you end up, can be very loose. Have you tried the ACLU or have they done it? I have not. I have not thought of that. Because um, this might be something that you can explore. Yeah. Um, also, just um, Fourth Amendment organizations or the privacy organizations. Right. There are those out there. The ACLU is the most powerful. Right. So that's what I, I would recommend if you're going anywhere. Because it appears it's, unless this is stopped, this point, we're going to have our complete data recognition on whatever chip we're going to carry around. It's going to have our credit information mm -hmm. and our personal information. Everything we're going to carry around, and these are assumptions, and most of them, they'll be wrong too. And they can haunt you in so many different ways because these guesses they make, these actuaries, are based upon statistics. 
but they're not 100%. You could fall in the 20% that doesn't have these characteristics, but still suffer along with it. It could be a disaster. Yes. And I mean, the reading I've been doing, like in law journals that have been writing more about um, the FICO score, and, or these uh, credit scoring mm -hmm. instruments that um, are using kind of consumer behavioral analytics to kind of build credit scores. This is already happening. So for example, there was a case in Texas of a, a business owner who um, happened to, was had excellent um, credit behavior, you know, always paid on time, didn't take out, you know, more credit than, um, than you know, the, I can't remember what the ratio is, like income to debt ratio, like they were very good in terms of, like they were good credit users. Um, and got notice from his credit card company that they were lowering his, um, his, uh, um, um, credit line um, because simply because not because of his credit behavior but because he happened to go to a particular store that other people who also shopped at that store had low credit scores and so his credit score was impacted simply because he shopped at one particular so store. So becomes the ultimate electronic profile. Yes, that, that's, precisely. That's, that's really Precisely. Well, and, yeah. Um, this, our time is coming to a close, so if you'd like to make a final statement, I think we've, we've moved pretty nicely, but I don't want to keep you from saying what else you want yeah, to share um, us about it. Before. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but I don't, I don't know what I can how I can give a glimmer of hope in, in this situation, other than I think that we really do need to promote kind of in a more very um, activist way uh, notion of algorithmic justice, where we're all of us are aware of what's happening with our data and how we're being profiled, and um, to start to organize ways, maybe through the ACLU, but maybe other um, organizations, in order to um, take some control back over our data, but then also how our data is used to analyze us. And I think that this discussion is enlightening in the sense that none of us knew, I mean, education is one of the best ways, awareness yes. is one of the best ways to fight any kind of problem. And then what you've done here is to pretty much enlighten us with this, presented us with the problem. And then now we can think of um, what we can do, or how can we influence others to make them more aware, and maybe change will come from this awareness as well. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know,